Yeah, hold that, please. Level five, thank you. Ah, you must be one of our new interns. Yeah, hi. Nice to meet you. Hi. Now, the most important thing to know is to attend the Biparsal Rise plug sale. The most important thing is what? Sorry. The single most important thing is to attend the Channelized Bing Bingus at the Biparsal Rise plug sale, and you'll be fine. Uh, yeah, that sounds important. Does work chat all sound like gibberish to you? Find collaborative articles with tips from the LinkedIn community to help you get through those tricky conversations. Making work make sense? LinkedIn knows how. The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. Stay ahead of all the big games in the best league in the world, the Premier League. With the latest odds, form guides, expert opinions and more, the fans are the players at Ladbrokes. Are you in? Let's go. Play at ladbrokes.com. 18 plus begambleaware.org T's and C's apply This is a game day podcast from TalkSport Hello and welcome to the game day podcast from TalkSport for the ultimate review of the weekend's Premier League action with me the former England star Trevor Sinclair and TalkSport's football reporter and commentator Alex Crook Take that after 21 wins on the spin City lose Are you sure? Luke sure because now Ollie's knocking at the door more Anfield agony as the bubble pops for Klopp's flops on what could possibly be Manchester United fans' favourite day of the season. Palace caned by the Prince of Wales and someone else. Please clear it, because Xhaka can't. Plus, in fashion, Fulham looking good under their parka, whilst Brighton's style continues to lack just a little bit of substance. All on the podcast that is certainly going to be a better hour spent than the one you wasted on West Brom against Newcastle, the game day podcast from TalkSport. This is Game Day. Hello and welcome to the Game Day podcast from TalkSport. Well, what a Sunday of stories. We have so much to get through. I'm like a kid in a candy shop. And so much to talk about with Trevor Sinclair, the former Manchester City star. Uh, Hello, how are you? I'm very well, Sam. How are you? Liar. And hello to (laughs) Alex Crook. Now, I usually ask you, uh, for your highlight of this week. But this week, before we get to the big games, I want you to tell me the worst thing you saw. Just list it and we'll pick it up later. The worst thing that I saw was comfortably the spectacle that wasn't West Brom against Newcastle. Arguably the worst game that I've had the misfortune to commentate, not just this season, but in my entire career. I would implore the Premier League that if by some fluke it looks like Newcastle are going to stay up at the expense of Fulham or Brighton please dock them points um, for artistic ability and send them into the championship because that is where they deserve to be based on what hurt my eyes on Sunday morning okay well uh, list obviously means elaborate and give us loads of points about it Uh, Trevor uh, what's the worst thing that you've seen Um, I have to say I'm going to have to go up north and go away from the Premier League but it was um, Celtic and how um, poor they were against Dundee United. Uh, I thought they were just poor. And t- to to take it to another fixture, which would have been um, the old firm or the, the Rangers-Celtic game, I just feel the fact that they didn't have the ability to do that and beat Dundee United was very poor. And there was me thinking that you were going to be a little bit closer to home. But anyway, we'll get to that because Liverpool lose again and the Manchester derby threw up all sorts of action. (laughs) 
It's a goal for Wood. You're not going to believe what happened. Granite Xhaka has just kicked the ball against Chris Wood inside the six-yard area, and it's gone beyond Burton Leno and gone in. It's a calamitous goal. It is Sheffield United nil at Southampton turn. It's the former blade, Shea Adams, who scored an absolute screamer. Not an awful lot happened. Full-time, Aston Villa nil, Wolverhampton Wanderers nil. And here's Iannaccio up against Sanchez, lifted over the goalkeeper and into the top corner. It's his fourth goal in his last seven games. The final whistle goes and it ends at the Hawthorns in a draw on a day where you feel West Bromwich champion just had to win. They are eight points from safety. It, it's unbelievable. Full-time whistle goes, the Fulham players all congratulate each other a massive huddle. Liverpool nil, Fulham won, defeated Anfield, no longer feeling like a shock, is it? It's a regular occurrence. They've managed to do it again in a Manchester derby. Full-time at the Etihad, Manchester City nil, Manchester United two. Tottenham four, Crystal Palace one. Tottenham now move up to sixth on goal difference. There's plenty for them to feel positive about. And let's start with the Manchester derby because it was an emphatic win. The manner of it, rigid defence, quick, frightening counter-attacks. You've got to give Manchester United credit and I'm sure it will give their players confidence, Crook. 22 league games away, unbeaten, 14 wins, but this the biggest of them all. What, what did you think about it? How did you see it? I was pleased with the performance. The, the game plan was perfect. Although, although it does baffle me that Pep Guardiola, clearly one of the greatest coaches um, ever to have managed, still doesn't work out that every time that United play City, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's go-to tactic is stick the three quickest blokes in the team up front, invite pressure and hit them on the counter-attack. Uh, it's, it worked again. It, it isn't particularly subtle, but it gets results. I thought Henderson had a really solid game in goal. Wan-Bissaka, not for the first time, had Raheem Sterling in his pocket. Luke Shaw making a, a real case now to be England's first choice left back. Martial turned into Lionel Messi for the afternoon. I don't know where that came from. Rashford but, superb. Apart from really missed the chance to make it 3-0. <laughs> James superb. McTominay excellent in midfield. But I guess the frustration is where was this performance against Crystal Palace and Sheffield United and West Brom? And it's easy to beat Manchester City when there's no real jeopardy. I know City oh, were going for a winning on. run, but ultimately it doesn't mean anything. They're still going to win the league. And if that was a, if that no was a semi-final or a final... Manchester City, is there? Come yeah. on, let's be completely fair. But the wins that United get against City tend to be irrelevant. I'm taking nothing away from the performance, but in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter. Crikey, nothing about being positive about your team winning the biggest game of the season so far. Um, I must admit, I thought they were very, very good. They approached the game brilliantly. Uh, I thought that, obviously, the, the challenge after 34 seconds was ludicrous and, and I don't know what on earth Jesus was doing. Um, but I thought that Manchester United just applied themselves brilliantly after that. Um, I also think it's, you know, because Crook did warn us that this was going to happen, didn't he, on the, on the preview podcast. You know, he's very adept at telling us so. He always Reverse says, psychology, I told you was. so, I told you so. He said this was the game where Pep Guardiola was going to open up and spank Manchester United out of sight and show them how classy they really were. Well, it didn't quite work out like that, did it, Trevor? Mystic crook. Um, <laughs> I just thought it was, a, it was a terrible start. I thought the Manchester City players looked like they wanted to do well, too well. Um, and it, it was almost like a reversal of when I was at Manchester City. When we played against Manchester United, that was our cup final. And that seemed to be the case for Manchester United. 
And um, I thought they approached the game well. They started obviously very well with the penalty, which for me was never in doubt. It was a clear um, foul by Jesus. Again, you know, just over keen to do well for the team. A big opportunity for him in that number nine role. Aguero on the bench, he probably feels that pressure because it's huge boots to fill if he's uh, expected to go in there and, and, and take that position from Aguero, even though he is getting on in his years. And I just thought that was kind of reflected within the Manchester City side in the opening 10, 15 minutes anyway. Um, and then for the rest of the game, I thought they did play the better football. They had more possession. I think it was about 60 odd percent, but just chances, you know, not clinical enough in the final third. And yeah. again, like you said, Manchester United, the tactic from Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, is to play their quickest players because they know that's their best chance of causing Manchester City problems. And that's why I was surprised with the lineup that Pep chose. And, you know, they've got a full squad to pick from. And I was really surprised that Kyle Walker didn't play with that kind of danger against Manchester United. Well, you, I think you mentioned on social media about Fernandinho. We've also mm. mentioned Kyle Walker there. I think, really, to me, the idea that Manchester City's biggest problem, which has been their problem if they've had a problem over the course of the last few months has been that they haven't been clinical or ruthless enough in front of mm. goal. 23 shots, only six of them were on target. So why didn't he bring on the guy who has scored eight Manchester Derby goals at all? Or even turn to Ferran Torres or even turn uh, to uh, to one of the other players on the pitch. You know, use two substitutes or all yeah, well, we, we We're not privileged to be in the training ground and to see what work's being done by the players. And but he must who's be impressive. fit enough to be involved yeah, because but, he's been on the bench for about six And weeks. I know, and it's, it's a real problem. And some players, and I would definitely uh, pinpoint Aguero as being one of these types of players, he's chilled. We've seen him warming up for games to come on and he looks like he's ready to go to bed or to sit down and have a brew. You know, he's so relaxed. So he's not going to be the player that's going to impress you in training by showing how busy he is and how fit and sharp. And I think that kind of went against him not being selected for the game and maybe even not even getting any participation in the game. A a quick question for you, Trev, because I I checked this out there on the boot room on Sunday night. Darren Bent laughed me out of town, but actually Jackie, (laughs) uh, Manchester City fan, big TalkSport listener, she agreed with me. I suggested that Kevin De Bruyne at the moment is causing Manchester City a problem. And actually, on current form, maybe they're a better team without Kevin De Bruyne in it. Because when he Mm. plays, Gundogan, who was exceptional uh, during their winning run, has to drop deeper. And and that negates his obvious goal-scoring threat that we've seen this season. Is is that too outlandish to make that claim? Yeah, I think you're right, Crookie. You know, I I looked at the stats and I think he he, um, created six or eight goal-scoring opportunities today. So... Maybe I'm looking at it with like tint, blue tinted glasses, but I've been watching his performances. We were at the West Ham game. I thought it was the worst player on the pitch. Um, it was his first game back after his injury. He's nego- By all accounts, he's negotiating a new contract or his agent is or whatever. He doesn't look himself. He's doing he, it himself, he, apparently. I don't think pardon? he's gone, actually. Yeah. So he's, he's negotiating. So I just don't think he's playing his best football. And, and it goes back to something that I've always believed is, it, it can be an Achilles heel, heel for a manager loyalty and I feel Pep's being too loyal to his star player by giving him more opportunities rather than bringing him out letting him get a little bit more match fit in training and then bringing him on as a I don't know 60th minute substitute just to get himself going again because after his injury he hasn't looked himself and you know listen I I mentioned it earlier we was at the West Ham game and I didn't make a big deal of it but we spoke like privately off air and I said my God, De Bruyne, you know, even his 10-yard yeah. 10, 10 passes, the detail of quality wasn't there. He was, he was 
risking so many things. He was it was almost like he was trying too hard. So I don't know whether the negotiations are getting to him, but it was a poor performance from De Bruyne, even though the stats might suggest that he, he set up many opportunities. He, he, he takes a little while it. to get back to match sharpness as well, doesn't he? And he, he is one of those players who always looks absolutely <laughs> exhausted after a 10-yard <laughs> sprint. Um, let's let's talk about the impact that it all made because as Liverpool have shown, you know, once the cloak of mm. invincibility has been dragged, uh, things can change very, very quickly. The gap is 11 points. There's still 10 games to play. Is the title race back on, Crookie? No. Um, <laughs> but actually, when you look at the, the other results this weekend and, and Chelsea's win on Thursday, that's a really important three points for Manchester United because had they have lost that game as we all expected, not just me, then there would have been teams snapping away at their heels, Tottenham in great form, Chelsea, I mentioned Everton as well. It just keeps that gap between United in second and those teams trying to gatecrash the Champions League places. Hopefully, they can go on a winning run now and I enjoyed Bruno's interview afterwards. He showed what it meant to him. He's obviously been hurt by the personal criticism that he doesn't turn up in big games and by the team's lack of form. Fingers crossed now they can find some consistency and, and really pull away from those Champions League challenges. And Dean Henderson, Trevor, what do you think about him? I thought it was excellent. I thought his communication skills were second to none. Uh, he made a couple of decent saves uh, where he looked assured, he looked confident. He looked like he believed himself that he deserved to have that jersey. I think that was the important thing. I think he instilled confidence in his defence, but I was really impressed with his communication. Even when they went 2-0 up, I think the sky cameras panned to him and it's shown him communicating with, you know, his centre-halves, with his full-backs, like, you know, just saying, right, greatly, let, let's keep it solid. But I just, I was thoroughly impressed with him. And I think How that's important what, is that for a team when you've got well, a goalkeeper that's so vocal? Well, it's huge. I mean, you've, you've seen the, the, the impact that, Ruben Diaz has had at Manchester City with the, the, the amount of clean sheets they've kept. And that's a central defender. I think all the back four, three, five and the goalkeeper are so important. And especially if you get leaders like that, who are quite chirpy, always giving out little bits of information, just reassuring their teammates around them. And I think Dean Henderson, I've never seen that before because I've not watched him very closely. I've seen him a lot at Sheffield United. Obviously, we've not seen many seen him perform or um, start for Manchester United many times. But I was just really impressed. He seemed like he... He just... He looked the part for me. You know, it weren't like it was a, a, a goalkeeper going in there and you could see that trepidation that this was his big opportunity and he, he was quite, quite fearful of that. It was a goalkeeper going in there thinking, these are my boots, this is my shirt, I'm ready for this. Yeah, and he's in the side because David De Gea is on paternity leave and we wish him all the best and his partner all the best. Um, it does give him an extended run in the team, Dean Henderson, which means that he's going to get the opportunity to stake a claim for that uh, number one jersey, which clearly he is determined mm. uh, to do. He hasn't let in a goal yet. Uh, Liverpool have. They were beaten again. Liverpool have lost their sixth game in a row at home in the Premier League. But surely now legitimate questions can be asked as to why they haven't adapted. They're still playing the high line still getting done by pacing behind, still lacking a mojo. The injuries are now becoming not only a justification, but they're an excuse for the players because the front three have created nothing. There's absolutely a serious disconnect between the Liverpool that we saw at the end of last season and the Liverpool that we're seeing now. And it isn't all to do with fitness. It's not a wobble anymore, is it? It's not a minor blip. It's it's a full-blown crisis. Six successive defeats for the first time in their history. And they're losing to teams that they would have played off the park in previous seasons. Burnley, Brighton, Fulham. 
I think it's a real worry. And I think it's interesting. There seemed to have been a shifting, certainly on social media this weekend. Liverpool fans, probably for the first time, and it didn't help that Steven Gerrard, ex-Liverpool, won the league on the same day. Don't say it. Suddenly, Liverpool Liverpool fans are calling for Jurgen Klopp's head and and calling Mm. for Steven Gerrard to come in. Some Liverpool fans. (laughs) I'm not saying that's the right thing to do, but I do think you have to ask questions of Jurgen Klopp. We had a very heated debate on the the pre-match podcast with Darren Lewis. He is adamant that it's the injury of, of Virgil van Dijk and thereby that challenge from Jordan Pickford that has completely unraveled them. But it goes deeper than that. Yes. We mentioned the, the disconnect between Salah and Mane. I thought it was really interesting that the one the, the one player he chose to pick out of those two was was Salah after his reaction to being subbed in the week. I, I wonder if, if Klopp's now thinking they can't play in the same team. But he made seven changes. They do have a Champions League line. game. They're tuning up in that Champions League game. Yeah, but that's still a dangerous scoreline. If Leipzig were to score first in midweek with the away goal, that could, that could be a problem for them. I, so I he thought, has to protect that because that's the only thing they've got to, to play for. I thought he, he showed a total lack of respect to Fulham and, and Trevor would have been in, in changing rooms when he's come up against a, a big team and, they, and they've made those type of changes. He will know that Scott Parker didn't need to give a team talk. He'd have pinned the the team sheet on the wall and said, that's what Jurgen Klopp thinks of us. Go and win the game. Well, Jurgen Klopp was asked afterwards, actually, if he felt as if the Fulham players wanted it more. Uh, And he answered that question as if it was a stupid question. Mm. And and sort of as if it was like an easy accusation, which it wasn't, because ultimately the inference in that question is all isn't well. And it isn't the appetite, the thirst for relentless victories, which has been lost over the last six months. Either there's a problem with his plans that he's presenting to the players or they've given up. Yeah, I've been in the situation myself, Sam. A manager puts you out, sets you up in training on the Thursday, the Friday, and you question him on the training pitch as an experienced player, which I was when I was at West Ham. You question the manager about the tactics and you say, are you sure? Are Are we set up? Have we got the the tools to do this and, you know, especially a high line, if you're going to go and press high, you can't go as a front three or a front, front two and four or you all have to go or else you get picked off because the quality in the Premier League is too strong and too good. Technically, physically, tempo, intensity. So what you do is you question the, the manager and then when you get out there on the pitch, you try it a couple of times and it doesn't work. And you, between yourselves, you say, boys, listen, we know that the gaffers asked us to press high. Let's sit off. We'll have a little like a dummy effort and then just sit in because there's no way we can press. We've not got the pace at the back. If the ball goes directly over the top of our defence, we are banging trouble. And this is what you talk, this is this is real talk from, from players like d- defying your management's kind of instructions. And I feel there's a real problem um, at Liverpool at the moment. Well, because, because they're not doing that, because they're not defying what he's told them to do. I think because they're ultimately, go- they're in a situation where yeah. every time the ball goes over one of their defenders' head, yeah. they cannot win. No, well, you look at Phillips, Williams, Quebec, Fabinho, um, Henderson, it doesn't matter who they play at the back. Um, none of them players are blessed with outstanding pace that can live with your strikers in the Premier League now. And I was at the game at Newcastle, uh, St. James's Park, and Callum Wilson run amok against the defenders. They weren't quick enough. He bullied them. And, and ever since then, I've actually got more respect for Callum Wilson because I do feel he, he's he got so much ability and he's got he ticks so many boxes. Uh, and that's probably why Newcastle are struggling so much without him. But that's another story. But 
if a player like that is, is causing Liverpool's defence so many problems with little balls down the channel, balls over the top, then what are the top like four, top six sides going to cause? And actually, you look at that Fulham side and Scott Parker needs, needs to take a, a whole heap of praise because the first game of the season, we were there at Arsenal. And I just thought the intensity, the attention to detail, the organisation was exceptional. And why would we ex- expect anything different? Because that's what he was like as a player. Yeah, he well, massively, he massively got the most out of himself, and I feel he's massively getting the most out of this Fulham side. Yeah, hold that, please. Level five, thank you. Ah, you must be one of our new interns. Yeah, hi. Nice to meet you. Hi. Now, the most important thing to know is to Ertz and the Bypassal Rise plug sale. The most important thing is what? Sorry. The single most important thing is to work in the channelized Bimbingus at the Bypassal Rise plug sale, and you'll be fine. Uh, yeah, that sounds important. Does work chattel sound like gibberish to you? Find collaborative articles with tips from the LinkedIn community to help you get through those tricky conversations. Making work make sense? LinkedIn knows how. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. There's a lot more to those 90 minutes than what goes down on the pitch. With the latest odds, form guides and expert opinions, you'll know the score with Labrooks. Odds update on Talk Sport with Labrooks. Are you in? Let's go. Play at labrooks.com, 18 plus, be gambleaware.org. T's and C's apply. Burnley's win at the Emirates three months ago has given Sean Dyche's side the chance to do a league double over Arsenal for the first time since the swinging 60s. Galloping into the opposition half, he plays it wide onto Aubameyang, who's on the angle of the penalty area, cuts in, gets onto his right foot, low shot towards the near post. Oh, and Nick Pope's seen it squirm under his palm. He got a big right hand to it, but it squirmed behind him and into the net. Oh dear, it's a goal for Wood. You're not going to believe what happened. Granite Xhaka has just kicked the ball against Chris Wood inside the six-yard area, and it's gone beyond Burnt Leno. Fair play to Chris Wood, he stays alive. He, he cuts the angle off for that pass to Chambers there. It's an awful goal to concede. A delivery, hits a hand, certainly hit the hand of Peters. He's turned to the linesman and asked for a handball there. His ball arm was away from his body. It seemed to flick up and hit the Dutchman. I thought that was handball, Sam. I thought the initial handball claim by Pepe wasn't. But then on the second phase, it's, well, the second it's almost one's definitely handball. And then it's whacked forward by Peters and tipped over the top from 30 yards by the goalkeeper Leno, who was backpedalling. That was sneaking under the crossbar. Pepe's not going to miss this one. Oh, it's headed against the crossbar by the retreating, I think, Peters. And, uh, well, is it a penalty? Oh, it's a penalty. It's come off someone's arm. Told you, no Keep chance. Absolutely brilliant no defending. Chance. Absolutely brilliant defending. Throwing your body on the line. I think that's where VAR come into its own because they've absolutely. made, made a, a terrible decision correct. He comes back to Saka. He's cleared off the line. He's smashed against the post by Ceballos. And then it comes to Xhaka. And now Aubameyang's got it in the six-yard box. And Burnley still can't get it clear. Now they do. There is the full-time whistle. Burnley won. Arsenal won. 
Arsenal started the week in 10th. They finished the week in 10th. Um, they played a relatively strong side at Turf Moor, despite, you know, definitely having eyes on the Europa League. They had a host of chances at the end of the game and in the first few minutes of the game. But in between time, Burnley certainly had a say in the matter. But the key moment is the baffling, inexplicably careless attempt by Granite Xhaka to clear his lines. Failing miserably and seeing the ball end up in the net. How can Mikel Arteta take this team forward if players continue to make mistakes as basic as that? See, I wanted to be nice tonight. Um, <laughs> but I can't be nice to Granite Xhaka. And the obvious answer to how you take the team forward is you replace Granite Xhaka. It's one of the mysteries of modern times for me that Granite Xhaka has survived, what, three Arsenal managers? And he's still there. First name on the team sheet, week in, week out. He is an appalling footballer. And that goal summed it up. And as long as you're making mistakes like that, as a manager, you're working with one hand tied behind your back. Uh, since 2016-17, no outfield player has made more errors leading to goals than Granite Xhaka. Um, so it would suggest, I suppose, Trevor, that, that Crook's got, I mean, although he's, you know, obviously incredibly harsh <laughs> and, may, and never afraid of an overstatement, um, he, 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 he must have a little bit of a point there, mustn't he? Yeah, um, listen, I, I think we called it right, you know, looking back at the everyone else, what they've said about the, 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 the mistake that he made. Um, it was the perfect um, ball out. It was a pattern of play coming from Leno. He put it on his right foot. He made it nice and soft so he could play it first time out to the right back, Callum Chambers. And for whatever reason, he didn't fancy it. And I think one confidence comes into play. Uh, the fact that you just stated that, 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 that stats, that he's given away more goals than any other midfielder um, since the start of the league, um, since the start of the season or last season, I think that play. 2017. I think I think psychologically, there's 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 a mental block there because it was a, such a simple pattern of play that Arsenal were trying to attempt, and for him to turn it down, to take a touch, to be extra safe, I think there's a confidence issue there. I don't it, think he's a terrible it, it footballer, can't, but I think can't he's can't complain got that he didn't see Chris Wood. I mean, Chris Wood's a giant. Yeah, and I, it's one of them where looking back, he probably would have thought, well, if it's not on to if that passing channel's not on, what do you do? You don't play it or you play it over the top where there's no risk. He's almost tried to go through him and it's just ricocheted straight off wood and straight into the goal. It's a really poor, poor error. And it, listen, I said to, I said at the end of the game when we were doing the summarising, he'll be in there at half time um, or, or after the game with his hand up apologising to his teammates. And that's the first thing that I read after the game when the statement started to come out from the tech changing room that he held his hand up and he apologised. But let's not get it back. Burnley got away with one. They started so passively in this game for the opening oh, 20, 25 minutes. Away. And really, Arsenal should have been out of sight. If they would have had uh, the intensity and the quality that we kind of associate with an Arsenal side, they should have been out of sight two or three goals yeah, up. They I weren't. And then they, that, got that, they got I, that little leg up and that kind of sprung them into gear. I must admit, I watched the match of the day edit. And of course, they've got to cram in highlights into a very short period of time. And, I and they've got it, an Arsenal player who's on the, on, on I the list. I thought it very much looked like, if you watch that, uh, that, that, that Arsenal basically smashed Burnley off the park, had loads of chances and could have mm. won it by a lot, you know, by three goals. But, uh, being at the game, and if you hadn't watched the full 90 minutes, you know, Chris Wood had two other great yeah. chances. In the second half... He was part of the best move of the game. Yeah. Yes, they had to dig in once again, but that's Burnley. I mean, this is a team with the smallest budget on the planet. 
Um, the fact that they can compete in the Premier League is thanks to the fact that they are willing to dig in. They are willing to be di- diligent defensively. And they've got a, a committed playing staff who, who, who undertake the manager's plans. Yeah, and that's why I think they'll be okay. I mean, you've highlighted it the relatively small gap now to Fulham, but they grind out results, Burnley. That they, yeah. they they stay in the majority games. Obviously, the, the hammering at Tottenham was the exception to that rule. But I think Sean Dyche continually deserves an incredible amount of credit for for keeping their head above water, largely relying on the same eleven players week in, week out, season in, season out, without much backing from boardroom level, and just goes quietly about his business. And actually, I've got to say, I really enjoyed the feature you did with him, Desert Island Dyche, um, <laughs> before the, the game on game day. And um, he's a great character as well. I'm not sure he gets the credit that he deserves for what he's done at Turf Moor. Um, I thought the refereeing in this game was absolutely abysmal. Mm. Um, and the reason I think that is, is not because Andre Mariner, who I actually think is one of the better referees, missed the Eric Peters handball. I think maybe officiating, not refereeing is the right thing. Um, that was a VAR mistake. That was a clear and obvious yeah. error. It should have been a penalty to Arsenal. And I don't think there's any doubt about that. Everybody is of the, the same opinion, really. But Andre Mariner being involved in the chaos where he did the red card, yellow card shuffle, um, and his almost speedily decision to send off Eric Peters when he thought that he might have handballed it. With the advent of VAR, you've got such a great safety net. Yeah. He doesn't need to make that decision. Well, he doesn't need to make the decision. And like you just said, he's one of the most experienced Premier League referees. To make that decision so quickly after the incident had occurred, I was I was shocked. And we were like, what? He sent him off as well. Because we weren't sure. It was, it was a decent volley, great volley from Pepe on we target. A long way away, but we weren't sure at that time. We both thought that wasn't handball. Yeah, straight away. But how can he be so sure? And and to make the decision so quickly and then to to make the decision to send off Peters, who had a very eventful 20, 25 minutes. <laughs> we almost give him man of the match. He had an unbelievable effort from about 30 yards on the on the volley. Um, a good save as well, I have to say, by Leno. I, I was quite impressed with Leno's uh, performance because I've been a bit of a critic and, and feel like they let the wrong goalkeeper go when Emmy Martinez went up to Villa. But going back to the incident and, and going back to the officiating, I mean, I, I, I said at the time to you, Sam, the, 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 the initial handball, which it looked like Pepe was trying to p- move the ball to his right-hand side to get a cross in. I thought Peter's intentionally put his hand out. Yes, and did. for VAR to not pick up on that, and I've seen the, re- the replays now and in super slow motion, and it's so obvious that he realises he's been wrong-footed. He, puts his, he extends his arm out. And I think, again, I just think it's a knee-jerk reaction from PGMOL who are trying to keep up with their rule changes and the rule changes that are going and associated with handball at the moment. And it was almost certain they weren't going to give that handball. Well, but it was I, certainly I, intentional to me. And yeah. you know, common sense should prevail that that is an intentional handball and yeah. should have been a penalty but to us. Deliberate handball is not in the law. And ultimately, the key thing is, if, as you mentioned, they've changed their interpretation of the handball law already once this season. And it seems to me that after the... Uh, after the, the Christmas period, they changed it again, or there's certainly some sort of softening in terms of the way they dish out penalties. But that's probably for a, another day. We've got another change in the law coming with handball in the summer, so that should be great. <laughs> I'm sure it'll work brilliantly. Um, oh, now, dear. Trevor Sinclair here with me, Sam Matterface and Alex Crook, and Trevor and I were at the game, and we had a difference of opinion on the Burnley opener. So let's ask our independent uh, adjudicator, Alex Crook, to give us his view on Nick Pope's uh, role in conceding that opening 
Goal. What did we think? Well, my first instinct was that we had a pre-recorded interview with Ben Foster going out on the programme on Sunday night saying that Nick Pope should definitely be England's number one goalkeeper at the Euros. And then, in my eyes, he chucked one in. I thought it was poor goalkeeping. I thought he should have saved the shot. And uh, I thought it was bad timing that we got that particular quote out of Ben Foster. But listen, he's a great goalkeeper. Unfortunately, if goalkeepers make mistakes, they tend to lead to goals. But I think he'll be disappointed that he didn't keep the shot out. Uh, West Bromwich Albion nil, Newcastle nil, midday on Sunday, live on TalkSport. Well, it was a tough week for Newcastle, wasn't it? But the idea that this is a battling point and really important in the race for, for, for survival in the Premier League, I'm sorry, it's been blown out of the water by Fulham's result. What really troubled me about this game, apart from the fact that it was an hour and a half that I will never, <laughs> ever get back, uh, was the fact that there wasn't even a yellow card in it. Two mm. teams fighting against relegation and they couldn't even foul one another properly. It was an insult to the beautiful game, in all honesty. It was... By the way, you being nice tonight is going really well. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 was, it, was, it was a tough watch. Um, uh, Sam Allardyce, actually, it, it, the camera zoomed in on him quite a lot during the game. And he was motionless for most of the 90 minutes. Arms folded, feet up in front of him, leant back in a dugout almost like he was resigned to West Brom's fate. And actually, they were the team who looked the more likely to win in the second half. Dianya uh, had a couple of guilt-edged opportunities, but Newcastle didn't really lay a glove on them. And they, they started with Joe Ellington on his own up front. Fraser sort of buzzing around. That didn't really work. They brought an Andy Carroll with 20 seconds to go. Yeah, What's the point in that? It was so negative. Um, Why didn't Steve he play Bruce. Dwight Gale? Why didn't he play Andy Carroll? I don't why is, know. Why has he not played an out-and-out striker in that game? Steve Bruce knows football. These lads are not... Obviously, in, he's under pressure as well. He knows that. And we spoke about him on Saturday uh, with the bust-up that Newcastle had in the changing in the training ground and the leak and all the rest of it. So you would expect them to come out fighting. The fact that Andy Carroll is not playing, I feel they're not showing enough in training. And when you talk about the, the bottom half of the table... If you Steve, Bruce, free... Steve Bruce is relying on other people's opinion of the, of the training, isn't it? Because we know from the story that came out, <laughs> he wasn't taking training. He's never there. Behave yourself. Listen, no, I didn't say that, but he, he's not. He's not, <laughs> he's not there all the time. Well, of course he's not there all the time because he has other things to do at the football club. But what I'm saying is, if you take a bottom half team of the Premier League and you take their three best strikers, which will be Wilson, Almiron and St. Maxim out of the side, you're going to struggle. And no disrespect, but Joe Linton's not been a success for a £40 million nope. player. Fraser has just been relegated with Bournemouth and he's not covered himself in glory for me at Newcastle. And Hayden... They knew he had a bad Hayden. attitude when they signed him, Fraser. Yeah, but I'd, I, 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 listen, I'm a big believer. You sign good people. And, and you look at Hayden. Hayden's not an attacking midfielder. Why wasn't, why wasn't Willett played more forward or, you know, the, the options that they've player, got are not great. So the fact that they've kept a clean sheet, I think that the, the back four, the back five, the back seven, whatever it's going to be, we'll be happy with that. But ten. in general, yeah, the back, <laughs> the, 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 the team will be happy that they kept a clean sheet. But the fact they can't beat West Brom is very, very concerning. Uh, what's more concerning is that 16 of their 27 goals this season have been produced by Callum Wilson, Miguel Almiron and Alan San Maximam. None of them back before April. Seven of the current top 10 are lying in wait 
in their final 11 matches. You're, you're convinced and you have been for a while that Newcastle will go down. And, and I have to say, having watched Fulham and unfortunately had, had to watch Newcastle, I'm starting to come around to your way of thinking. I actually think it's not great for Steve Bruce and his mental health at the moment, what he's going through. He, he knows that almost to a man, the Newcastle fans don't want him there. You're getting the impression the players don't particularly want him there either. He doesn't look like someone who's enjoying his job. And that's a mm. shame because he's a, a lifelong Newcastle fan, knows the club. You know, this was the job probably when he set out on his managerial journey that he wanted, arguably above all others, maybe with the exception of Manchester United. But it's, it's quickly turned from a dream into a nightmare. And I don't know, should he walk away? Well, he's not going to walk away so. because no. if he gets fired, he gets four million pounds. All right. Well, forget about that. I mean, you have to look at the squad for me. And, and the squad is not strong enough. I think it's lack of investment from the owner. Um, I think the, the, the depth that they've well, not well, got hold, is... hold, hold on. With the lack of investment, they spent a lot of money on Fraser, Will, wages on Fraser. Wilson, they spent a lot of money on him. They spent £40 million on Joe Ellington. So, and bad recruitment. Sam Maximam cost quite a bit of dough. Mm. Ultimately, they, they've spent more money recently than they have done in... In previous years, I mean, there was one year, you've got to remember, where they were so arrogant that they uh, allowed Alan Pardew to go to Crystal Palace and then just put a caretaker in charge till the end of the season. That yeah. was in December. So, yeah, yeah I think the ambition, year as a the result ambition. So they've been, they've, been less, they've been less forthcoming with their funds. I think the ambition from the people who are in charge at Newcastle have got to be questioned. And actually, yeah. as, as media, um, I think we should probably take a little bit of a, slapping the face from the Newcastle fans because they've been saying this for a long, long time. And it took us a while to maybe stop supporting Steve Bruce and actually come to some kind of realisation that actually the fans are spot on here. And I think Newcastle are in real danger, like Cookie said, of going down. Um, Aston Villa against Wolves was another entertaining encounter. Uh, that finished nil-nil on Saturday night. Oh, we moaned about Aston Villa not having the nous when they were in games and, and not drawing enough. They seemingly lost or won almost everything. Uh, a, a bit like um, Leeds United, really. They'd only drawn a couple of games all season, but they did draw this one. However, this game is notable for one thing and one thing only. Roman Saïs's miss. How on earth, with the laws of physics, as we all know, <laughs> did that not go in? Well, yeah. Um, I think the fact that their best chance has fallen to Roman Saiz probably tells you all you need to know about where Wolves are as a club at the moment and their lack of attacking options. But of course, he, he should have scored. And again, it goes it goes down to a goalkeeper making a mistake, at least to a goal. If, if a forward player misses a chance like that, he will be running it over in his head. I'm sure Trevor's been there and, and missed it in his career. Oh, I don't remember them cooking. I put them to the back of my brain. I'm sure I've got some on YouTube. <laughs> but, but it would have been a bit harsh on Aston Villa if they had lost the game. I think the O'Neill was, was probably a fair result. And two teams who may be just treading a bit of water now for the rest of the season. I know you've mentioned Villa have got games in hand, but with the absentees, no Matty Cash, no Grealish, uh, Watkins' goals have dried up. It, it does look like a, a promising campaign is going to peter out somewhat. Yeah, even if it does, it's still not a problem. Because mm. right at this moment in time, Aston Villa are a good nine or ten places better off than they were at this stage yeah. last season. That is a significant improvement. Yeah, recruitment's been great. The players that have come in have had a huge impact on the on the club. 
We mentioned Emi Martinez. He's been one of the best in the Premier League. I think Cash has been superb. It was a big step up for him. A big question whether he, he could meet the standards of the Premier League. I think it, it, we've all, we're all bought into the fact that he's a Premier League player. Um, I think Grealish, again, has enhanced himself with the, with the professionalism and the standard of performances. Goal involvements has been outstanding. You look at Ollie Watkins, like uh, Crookie just said, you know, I know his goals have dried up a little bit, but he brings so much more to the party and yeah. he has been outstanding. He's playing with responsibility. He's got physical attributes. He's got pace. He's a, he is a finisher when he gets opportunities. And yeah, their recruitment's been top draw, even the you know the, the, the boys that they've, they've loaned in. So yeah, fair play to Dean Smith. He's made sure that he didn't want to get in the uncomfortable position that they were in last year. And um, relying on a VAR mistake when the ball went over the line against Sheffield United, and they're comfortable. And although it might not turn into the season that they may have hoped, maybe six weeks ago, it's still going to be a comfortable end for them, and they can build on this. Okay, still to come, we'll be talking about Tottenham and Crystal Palace, Brighton and Leicester as well, and a quick nod on Sheffield United and Southampton. But first, let's go trending. <laughs> Should we start with the story of your uh, lost coat at Turf Moor at the weekend? It wasn't a lost coat. You know, get it right. If you're gonna, if you're gonna, if you're gonna, you know, report on something that happened to me, you've got to get the facts right. I was stupid, and I turned up at a game where the temperature was probably about two degrees without a coat. I I forgot to take it. <laughs> I walked out of the house and I had all these bags for dancing on ice, and I just didn't pick up my coat. Idiot, absolute idiot, and it was really cold. And I was trying to put a brave face on it. I wasn't talking about it. Trevor and Reshmin had a heater at the other end of the <laughs> press box, all in their coats and their gloves and their hats. Where there was me in my little jumper with my hat on, freezing my nut off. But Burnley came to your rescue, didn't they? What a club. They did. They did. They gave me a coat. They gave me a big, warm, and it's so warm as well. And I tried to give it back to them. Uh, and they said, no, 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 it's now yours. You've got to cherish it and take it with you. So I will. And I wore it all the way down to, to London. So, so here's a question. Obviously, we know you're a Chelsea fan. So say the same thing happened at Tottenham or at Arsenal or at West Ham United. Would you have donned the club jacket of one of those rivals of your team? I think it's really important that I've learned my lesson. And <laughs> that way, it shall never happen again. I think there's, one, there's one coat that I, I seen over the weekend and it was Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank's coat and eat your heart out Arsene Wenger it oh. was ankle length it was looked like a glorious duvet cover it was beautiful <laughs> so if I'm going to be offered a coat I'd love to get that one because it was Baltic by the way and I had a coat on and I felt cold so next time we go to Burton we will forget coats absolutely uh, someone else who uh, has got his jacket is um, Harry Kewell uh, sacked by Oldham, the Liverpool legend, after yeah. seven months in charge. So um, probably, again, an example that it doesn't always translate that if you're a fantastic footballer, as he was, that you're going to become a great manager. I think that's uh, Notts County and Oldham now who've sacked Harry Kill. You do wonder where his career goes from there. And on the subject of his old club, Liverpool, uh, we know they've got problems in the forward areas. Well, their cunning supporters uh, might just have come up with a plan there. Uh, they set up a GoFundMe page to raise £250 million to sign Killian and Bappe. Do we think they've got a chance? <laughs> if they raise £250 million on a GoFundMe page, then, I mean, they need their heads red, really. To be and honest. they deserve it. 
Well, they deserve it would to be have amazing, Kylian. though. It <laughs> they would they, de- they if definitely did. deserve to have Kylian Mbappe if that was the case. What would be worse is if they raised the money, gave it to Liverpool. Liverpool tried to execute his um, release clause and he said, no, no, I don't fancy it. <laughs> I wonder where they go then. Um, and we should touch on, on Celtic Rangers. Trev mentioned it earlier. Rangers uh, winning their first SPL title in 10 years. Actually, that doesn't tell the full story, does it? When you think they had to drop down to the, the bottom league in Scotland after their financial problems, they fought their way back up. Steven Gerrard has done an incredible job. But the big question, Trev, will Celtic give Rangers a guard of honour in the old firm derby coming up? It's a great question. Um, a great question. Well, I think for any club... That's not been in operation for more than 10 years to win their first title. I think it's only right and proper that Celtic give them the guard of honour. So congratulations to Rangers on their first ever in their history title. Charlatan, unbelievable. How I think that I think the players should uh, give them a guard of honour because it's a great (laughs) achievement. The club's only been in existence for 10 years, so what an achievement that is. (laughs) How to ensure that one, you get a free drink in every single green pub in Glasgow and never get allowed anywhere near anybody who's got a range of fence. It's a great, great achievement. And I think, you know, you can't be poor losers. You know, they've deserved it. The home record's been outstanding. So, um, and Stephen's done an exceptional job. You know, I said last season, probably with you, Sam, with you, Crookie, Stephen doesn't want to be the manager of Rangers when or if Celtic lift lift the 10 in a row. And he's made sure that that's not the case. So fair play to him. Congratulations to Rangers. On the subject well of the old firm. Um, is that me backtracking? Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe a little bit. Uh, Brendan Rogers uh, in the post-match interviews after Brighton at the weekend, he spotted that our producer, Ollie, who was shadowing um, Sal, uh, the senior producer, he was wearing a Celtic scarf. Brendan Rogers was really impressed with that. He loved it. Nice. He's still, he's still, he's still really alert. good at having like a, a rapport with or building a rapport with people. That's why I think, you know, it's no surprise that his teams play so well and he's got a good relationship with his players because if you meet Brendan, he, he's very good at forming a connection with you straight away. Yeah, I've been a big fan of Brendan's for a long time. I think the, the, the brand of football, the style of football he plays, but it's not just that. I think... When you look at the connection, like you said, that he has with the area, with the town, with the people, mm. I think that's fundamentals in football management. If you go to a place, it doesn't matter where it is in the in the world, never mind the country. You talk, you listen to Pep talking the other day. He's talking about Shakespeare. He's talking about Oasis. He's talking about uh, the Beatles. I think it, it, it all, fans all three great Mancunians. No, but it's about England, isn't it? <laughs> he loves England. He loves the Premier League. He loves what he, what he's part of. And the fact that he's, you know, top of, top of the tree, I think it, it, it makes it a little bit easier. But, you know, it's, it's not an easy country to come to, especially when you're coming from a continental country where the weather for eight months of the year is superb and you come to England and for six months it's absolutely lashing it down and it's grim and it, especially up north. You know, and I know you know that, Sam, because you, you are a, a London boy, but it, it is it's something that you have to embrace. And I think the fact that managers worth their salt do that it's, remember, it's part of the due diligence and I think they do you know when they do that they get a little bit of time especially when things are not going well I remember in the summer of 2016 as I just bought my house in Didsbury Manchester <laughs> and I was in Paris uh, no I was in Marseille with uh, Louis Saha South of France and, uh, I said to him uh, he said uh, you know what are you doing I said oh when we finish here we're, we're moving house actually where are you moving to I'm moving to Manchester he grabbed me on the shoulder he looked at me with big wide eyes and went 
why? Why are you doing that? He said, when I lived there the first year, I kept a tally chart, 216 days of rain. Wow. 216 days of rain. Don't do it. <laughs> he wasn't wrong, by the way. He wasn't wrong. <laughs> Tottenham 4, Crystal Palace 1. Kane and Bale in terrific form. When those three with Son click, as we always believe that they would, they blow teams away. And it really sets up a tasty derby next Sunday, doesn't it, Crook? Because they take on Arsenal. We've already mentioned Arsenal. We know where they are in the table. But Tottenham Hotspur have crept up into sixth position. They're only two points behind Chelsea, played the same games, there is every chance that they can mount a top four challenge. It's been a strange season, isn't it? Because they started badly at home to Everton and, and, and their fans were in uproar with that performance. Then they went on a really good run, including that six-run win against Manchester United. Then their form tailed off. It wasn't working out with Gareth Bale. And now all of a sudden, they're on this great run again. It seems to have clicked. And weirdly, I think it was the game they lost against West Ham. That second half Mm. performance gave Jose Mourinho and gave the Tottenham players belief actually they can go out and play an attacking brand of football play on the front foot and and, and get results I mean he'll have been fuming they conceded against Crystal Palace good goal from Benteke by the way but they're right in the hunt now aren't they and I'm reluctant to make bold predictions because this season (laughs) are you? Well, <laughs> but, but, but this season, you, you just can't predict it, can you? I mean, we, we didn't expect United to go to City and win. On paper, Tottenham should have far too much for their average Arsenal team. But it's a London derby. It's a North London derby. So this is going to be a big test of exactly how far they have come. But I've got to say, uh, watching that performance against Palace, Bale in full flow, brilliant goal from Kane, Son pulling the strings on the left-hand side. It was a joy to watch and... I think slowly but surely, Jose Mourinho is winning round his doubters. What, three wins in a row that he really needed, Trevor, wasn't it? Because it, it lost it lost the faith of some Tottenham supporters. <laughs> yeah, like you said, I think the, um, the tipping point was that West Ham defeat, but certainly the second half performance. And again, I look at Bale and I think, is Bale going to be the one in training, busying himself up after all he's achieved in the game? He's been that player where he needs to be busy in training and impress the manager. He's not that player. He shouldn't need to earn the right from the manager to, to say that he's got quality to turn it on an, on a match day. And unfortunately, I feel with the way Jose Marino is, he, he almost wants to see that off everyone in training as well. And I just think the, the fact that he came on and he was so instrumental in the second half performance against West Ham, he's almost had to concede and say, you know what, I'm just going to have to go with it with you, Bale. And the performances since... I've been outstanding. And he's still not playing him 90 minutes. He brought him for 70 minutes today. But his involvement for the goals, his all-round play, um, his assists. And I think, like like Crookie just said, and everyone, listen, everyone who watches football in England knows if Bale, Son and Harry Kane are on it, they are very difficult to contain. Yeah, um, the one thing that concerned me about that, um, <clears throat> a bit like it concerned me on Thursday night when I was watching Chelsea up at Anfield, was this new penchant for having blankets on the bench. <laughs> Slightly <laughs> troubling. Uh, Especially uh, that far south, by the way. Yeah, 100%. Uh, Palace weren't awful, were they? They no. were just very Crystal Palace. And that is to say that without significant investment and change in the summer, they're going to be in big trouble next year. Second bottom in expected goals in the league. Fourth from bottom in expected points. 
fifth bottom in expected goals against, sixth bottom in actual goals against. They really are hanging on by their fingernails in the league. And they're not a very entertaining watch. The major bonus, I suppose, for them is that Wilfred Zahar is now returning. He will make a difference. Yeah, uh, because they're eight points clear of the drop zone and with the form that Fulham are in, you could make an argument for them being sucked in, but I think they've probably already got enough points and with mm. Zaha back, they will pick up the probably only one more win they need really to guarantee Premier League safety. But we've been saying for a while now an overhaul is needed in the summer, I think both in terms of the playing squad and probably the manager as well. I think Roy Hodgson has probably taken Crystal Palace as far as they can. Um, but we say that every season. They are oh, next season, Palace are going to be in trouble. And they seemingly almost never are. Here's a big chance for Brighton, and he's been tucked away. Adam Lalana gives Brighton the lead inside 10 minutes. It's his first goal since October of 2019. Vardy over the top here. Lays it up for Tavares. Oh, brilliant strike. Even better save by Sanchez. Here is Iannaccio, though. Good ball through to him. He's got the wrong side of Lewis Duncan. He slammed it left-footed into the side netting. That's the ball they've been looking for all night, Leicester. And here's Iannaccio up against Sanchez. Lifted over the goalkeeper and into the top corner. Kelechi Iannaccio equalises for Leicester City. It's his fourth goal in his last seven games. Here is Trossard into the penalty area. Gross into Lallana, left-footed shot, good save, Schmeichel. Down to his right-hand side, I think it was moving awkwardly. It's a goal for Leicester, that's what it is. The corner has found Amate, and he scored only his second Premier League goal. I'm not sure that he knew an awful lot about it. It was a mistake by Robert Sanchez, the Brighton goalkeeper, who came and missed the corner. It almost just bounced off Amate and into the back of the net. Brighton against Leicester, uh, that was uh, the game that you commentated on. Brighton very much in a spot of bother, as we have mentioned before on this podcast. And this game showed us why, didn't it? The lack of killer instinct, so obvious in this match. How concerned should Brighton be, Trevor? Because here's a blasphemous idea. They may have to try something different, mightn't they? Because this, creating loads of chances and never scoring them is, is a real issue. I mean, I don't know if this culture is baked in. They have to play this way. Can they go more direct? They've done it before. Well, it's a huge problem when you're not clinical in front of goal and you're not killing games off, which they've had so, they've created so many chances and, and just missing chance after chance. And if that continues to happen, the confidence wanes from the side and it doesn't matter how good your defence is, you are always going to concede goals because you're playing in the Premier League, you're playing against sides that more often than not, I've got better players than you. And uh, if you're not killing games off, which was the case against Leicester, I thought they created really good chances uh, in the opening exchanges. Um, got in, you know, had a lot of possession as well. And that was the Leicester side that's been struggling for confidence themselves. And and to lose it in the dying seconds, I think that'll be really um, worrying, but also hurtful to the confidence of the side. And uh, they need to get out of this rut because if they don't, I do believe they'll get sucked into it. Yeah, in the last three games, Crook, 66 shots one goal. Danny Welbeck, Neil Mopé, uh, Leandro Trossard, Aaron Connolly and Pascal Gross have all scored goals before. It, it does look as if there's some sort of 
mental problem here. Is is someone using a sports psychologist to try and change this mentality? I don't know the answer to that question, but I will certainly find out. Um, I think it's par for the course now for clubs to use mm. psychologists. So I'm sure there is that stuff going on behind the scenes. But mentality is important. Um, and I, I felt for a while now that Brighton as a club believe they'll be okay. And they probably will be. But mm. I think it's dangerous to assume that they're going to be okay. And actually, I was quite encouraged with Adam Lallana at the weekend, not just his performance. He was sensational for the first half. It was like rolling back the years, the, the, the flicks, the goal he scored. He was instrumental in everything they did. And there was a lot of positive things. But also his post-match interview, he came out and said, look, that second half isn't good enough. You know, the drop in standards is alarming. And we've ended up losing a game that we should have won in the first half. I don't think Graham Potter has said that enough. Uh, his mood never seemed to change week after week, defeat, win, draw, which in one way you can say it is endearing, but sometimes a manager needs to say how it is. And actually, it's a problem that Alex yeah, for me. Yeah. Um, because I think the mentality is they play nice football, but they lose more games than they win. I think there's an acceptance in the squad. I'm not sure defeat hurts them. And I think, I think, I think, as, I think as a manager, Graham Potter comes across like he can be too nice. And I've played for managers like this before. Um, where win or lose, don't get too happy, don't get too sad. But actually, they're in a real situation here where they could get relegated and a little bit more urgency needs to come from the manager when they're losing games, which they should be winning. And I think that's why it was refreshing to hear Lalana come out and be so real with the situation that they're in. And I think if that's coming from the top, as in the manager and the coaches, I think that might be enough just to get them over the line and start winning games again. They could be the most profligate team and the best team to ever be relegated from the Premier League, couldn't they? Because they are so good at creating chances yet they don't score goals. The pattern of play is great. They're easy on the eye. They're just not ruthless enough. They need that killer instinct. And and how you get that, I don't know how you, you, you tune your players into getting that, but someone has to take responsibility. I actually do think they'll be okay because I think they've got enough fixtures that they can get something from. But then again, you, you know, you'll tell me that they've had enough fixtures to get something from over the course of the last nine months. And, and, and the ones that you expect them to pick up points in is the ones they don't. Well, the next two games are massive. Um, Southampton away mm. next Sunday, live on Talk Sport, And then Newcastle at home, eight o'clock kickoff the following Saturday. They need to win at least one of those games if not take four points out of six. If they can do that, I think they can rest easy. If they lose both those games, and if they lose at home to Newcastle, come on. Come on. Uh, we mentioned that We mentioned that on Saturday. I think one of the, the great things about Burnley is when they play teams in and around them, they do not lose. And I think Brighton have got to get something out of these both these games because Southampton and both Newcastle are in and around them and it's teams that they should be looking to take points from. That's a good point, actually, isn't it, about Southampton? You know, Obviously, they picked up a win at the weekend, but they only have 33 points. Traditionally, not enough to keep you in the Premier League. But I think they probably will get more over the course of the next 10 games. So I don't think they're too concerned now. But James Ward-Prowse and Shea Adams, both on, uh, Shea Adams, both on the score sheet. They won for the first time since the 4th of January. It wasn't a great game, wasn't it? But I, I think, you know, very quickly, you think they're, they're safe now. And if they do end up picking a win up next week, then the FA Cup becomes a, a real live issue for them, doesn't it? 
Yeah, that was a huge win at the weekend, especially now that they face a wounded Manchester City in midweek. I mean, I think they've written that game off anyway, and they can certainly do so now. You'd expect a reaction from <laughs> Pep Guardiola's team in that game. Um, had they have not won, I think the confidence would have been completely drained away. Actually, it's not, it's not going to be 9 nil again, is it? <laughs> well, you never know. Could that happen three times in two years? Um I th- actually think they played quite well. They, they managed the game well. They kept Sheffield United at arm's length. Uh, they, they had their key players back. You know, Walker Peters was back in the team. Vestergaard was back. Obviously, they lost Danny Ings to injury. But actually, the way Danny Ings has been playing uh, since this contract dispute became public, I'm not sure that is a massive loss. His form isn't brilliant. And Shea Adams came on hungry against his old club, scored a great goal. So I, I think that could be a turning point in their season. But you're right, if they, if they can beat Brighton, then they will be safe in the Premier League. And then they can really go to Bournemouth just along the south coast. The team they have to beat really in a quarter final, and suddenly start planning for Wembley. Mm. Uh, Trevor, uh, thank you very much for your time tonight on what has been a very difficult day for you, we know. Um, what, are you, <laughs> what are you going to do to sort of, I mean, because it's a rare event. You know, I, I, is, it, is it an alien experience for you losing now as a Manchester City fan, what do you do? You're just going to go and get your replica shirt out, sit in the... <laughs> well, no, I can see that crook has got his replica shirt on. I actually think, and I did actually tweet this, I feel it could be a blessing because going for these records, people don't really remember the records. They remember the silverware. And I just feel there's been a lot of pressure, media coverage on these records. Oh, yeah, they're going for 22. Can they break the world? Yeah. Forget about all that. It's about what you do in May. And, and what, what happens in that final game of the season against, is it Everton um, in May? And if they're lifting the Premier League title, again, when you go to uh, Much and Gladbach, are they going to win that game? Are they going to go to the next stage? These are the things that matter. Are they going to get through into the FA Cup final again? I think they need to stop worrying about records. And I think this could be a blessing. But also, I do feel there was a couple of tactical or, or, or decisions that Pep made uh, certainly with uh, Fernandinho, I, I definitely feel that um, the problem that we've seen so often with Sterling against uh, Aaron Wambasaka is a problem, whereas Foden, even when he was introduced late on in the game, he gave Aaron Wambasaka a big problem. So I think that was, there was a few errors there made by Pep. And it, listen, it's a, it's a game that I don't feel, think will affect the season. So it's good that these mistakes have been made. It's good that the record's been put to bed. I just feel there could be a lot of gains from this loss. Mm, right. Okay. So, if now Manchester City go on a six-game losing run like Liverpool, we'll clip that up and say that Thanks. this result <laughs> didn't matter. Um, but we haven't got a habit of doing that. Um, uh, Crook, thank you very much for your time. Enjoy your uh, your 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 very important victory in your cup final against Manchester City today. Um, it's not. It's not. It's not our cup final. Can I just stress that Liverpool's still our cup final, despite what Trevor would lead. Well, believe. that's that's because you're of a certain age, Crookie. But if you ask the majority of your younger fans, I think they'll differ with you. Crook hasn't got any fans. Um, right, that's it from us. Thanks to Trevor Sinclair and to Alex Crook. We're back on Thursday, looking ahead to another mammoth weekend in the best league in the world, the Premier League. The Premier League All Access Podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. The latest odds? We set them. Form guides? We've got them. Expert opinions? We share them. 
The best fans in the world deserve the best. Be match day ready before the whistle blows with Labrooks. Odds update on Talk Sport with Labrooks. Are you in? Let's go. Play at labrooks.com. 18 plus. Be gambleaware.org. T's and C's apply. Yeah, hold that, please. Level five. Thank you. Ah, you must be one of our new interns. Yeah, hi. Nice to meet you. Hi. Now, the most important thing to know is to Ertzen the Biparcel Rise plug sale. The most important thing is what? Sorry. The single most important thing is to Ertzen the Channelized Bimbingus at the Biparcel Rise plug sale, and you'll be fine. Uh, yeah, that sounds important. Does work chat all sound like gibberish to you? Find collaborative articles with tips from the LinkedIn community to help you get through those tricky conversations. Making work make sense? LinkedIn knows how.